All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 is where we'll begin tonight in our text. To their credit, the public broadcasting system produced most of those clips you just saw in a program for Frontline, a sobering message for parents and teens alike. Chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Spirit, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let's pause for a moment of prayer. Lord, we do humble ourselves before you, ask for your Spirit to touch, to speak, to change. And we relinquish control, Lord, to your sovereignty and to your love. In Jesus' name, amen. You've seen our text. Our title tonight is The Message in the Mirror. Now, you may be familiar with the character from the Victor Hugo well-known book, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He was Quasimodo. What you might not know is that in the British Journal of Plastic Surgery, they have identified through a study what they call the Quasimodo complex. And here's how it works. They found that in the general population, a random sample would draw roughly 20% of people with surgically repairable defects, minor or medium things about their bodies or their faces, oversized ears, etc. However, in the prison population, they discovered that that number mushroomed to 60% among the violent offenders, the felons. And this is not to make victims out of criminals, but it does cause us to pause and consider the point, could it be that the treatment of these children in their younger years um, had pushed them towards violence through the cruelty they experienced as children? Thus, the Quasimodo complex certainly is a question worth our contemplation. Let's first, in our text tonight, look at one of the major key words that we find here, and that's the, the power of image. The power of image. Now, the pursuit of image we know, we have experienced, can make a person do some reasonably incredible things. Uh, merchandisers have learned that even with quality being equal, people will pay vast sums of money more for an object with the right label that gives them the right perception of image. Um, the word image is an interesting Old Testament word study to do with your concordance sometime. You will discover that in the first portion of Genesis, the word image is given very positive connotations. First of all, God said, let us, the Holy, the Holy Trinity, make man in our image. And there are a few more references like that in the opening passages. But from that point, and for the duration of the Old Testament, the word image has been corrupted and only has negative connotations. It is mainly associated with idolatry. In other words, once there is the intervention of the fall, the term image, the concept image has been so marred 
that it is never put in a positive light again. It is primarily, as I say, associated with idolatrous behavior. In fact, we probably should accept the fact that image, particularly in our culture, in our day and age, has become nearly a religion unto itself. And if we do accept that, then I think we can say that the fashion industry as a whole serves as the high priest of this cult. The mirror would be the platform of worship. And we and our children would be the sacrifice. Because people do worship their own images. And this leads us to the need for distinguishing between style and substance. It's important that you draw that contrast. There was a time in most of human history when style was traditionally identified as the leading characteristics of a ruling period, i.e., the Victorian period. You saw Victorian architecture as a reflection of the mores, the morals, and the social customs of the Victorian era. The Gothic era, the Classic era, the Romanesque era, all these architectures and styles of art were an outgrowth of the essential reality of what was going on in the culture and the social norms of the day. So style and substance were closely related. The style of architecture, thought, and art did not define the era in and of themselves, but rather they expressed the exterior of the substantial interior character of the dominant theme of the peoples of that day. But that is no longer true. Our era has amputated style from substance. Style has become an end unto itself. We change styles regularly. We have what we call what makeovers. We become different people. With no root system to style anymore, it is free to become transient and elusive and illusionary. Our fashions change with the wind because they are no longer anchored to the essence of substance. We have even now, I read recently what they call Botox parties. Have you heard about those? Well, this sounds like fun. What you do is you go to a party that's sponsored by a medical doctor. And you have time of eating and drinking. And they bring around these trays with syringes full of Botox. And the doctor injects it into your forehead and your cheeks and your chin. And it effectively numbs or freezes or I'm not sure precisely the mechanical nature of it. But it causes your skin to become taut. And for three to six months, your wrinkles are gone. So they inject this hypodermic needle into your face. What a great party. Maybe next we can have root canal parties. That would be a blast. But essentially, what our culture has done is to sever reality from illusion. And especially as the advent of multimedia and the technologies available today for rapid technical changes, we can create our own reality. Now, 
each age throughout history has its own unique and particular challenges. For example, the Dark Ages, of course, had the repressive era, and Christians in that day had to overcome the restrictions upon Bible reading and fellowship and even proclaiming their faith. The Industrial Era had to overcome diseases and the problems of conquering new frontiers. We live in a different era. We live in the entertainment information era. Our challenge as Christians is to determine what's true, what's real, what's valuable. There is such an onslaught of information, such an overwhelming amount of input in our lives, we must take time to perform what we call in the media world a gatekeeping function. Sometimes you have to shut it off and take time to decide what's really going on. As one song said, what to leave in and what to leave out. What's true? What's real? What's valuable? Because you can no longer take things at face value. There was a time when you said, well, I read it in the newspaper. That carried some weight. Now, if you take that to what you find in the newsstands at the checkout counter at the grocery store, you'll believe all kinds of things. There are some very unusual headlines I've noticed at the Circle K. There is virtually an ocean of trivia flowing into our lives. And we must make those decisions if we're to enjoy what we find in our text tonight. And that is freedom. The goal of God in our lives is liberty. God wants to bring us to freedom, out of bondage into freedom. Listen, in every area of your life, the Lord wants you to be free, wants you to experience true, honest liberty on His scale, not on ours. So the goal of God is to free you from bondage. And that must, we must take some time here and give some context to chapter 3. We'll try to capsulize it for you. Paul is basically reflecting on a story in the life of Moses from Exodus where Moses uh, interacted face-to-face -face with God, came down the mountain, spoke to the children of Israel, and realized, oh, my face is glowing. And people think that's cool. And so he wanted to maintain that aura of spiritual respectability, he didn't want them to notice that the glow was fading. And so he veiled his face, uh, ostensibly because the glow was too bright, but in reality because the glow was fading. And that speaks so poignantly of what the law does. The law gets you close to God, but really doesn't keep you there. It's temporary. It's like joining a club where you have to annually renew your dues. You don't get a lifetime membership. Every year at the time of Yom Kippur, they had to re-sacrifice, recover the sins of the priests and the people, and go through all that entire ritual because the law couldn't really bring us into right standing with God. And this story reflects that. That's why he says that now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And this is in contrast to the bondage of the law, to performance-based relationship with God, based upon your behavior, your obedience, your attempt to keep the law. That brings us into bondage. We know from verse 6 that the letter kills, the letter of the law will kill you, but the Spirit 
will give you life. And so we want to move from freedom to freedom. And there are many things to be afraid of today, are there not? And people have all kinds of fears. I found a, a fascinating glossary of the different kinds of fears. And unfortunately, it's all written like in Latin, so I now have a fear of pronunciations, but I'll, I'll, um, I'll do my best. Some of the fears include colophobia is the fear of clowns. Um, this I didn't like. It's a homeliophobia. It's a fear of sermons. And I hope you don't have that. Uh, lachnophobia is the fear of vegetables. A lot of people have that. Um, Lithophobia is the fear of lawsuits. You can get that from uh, litigation. Um, Phobiaphobia. Fear of fear. And that's a vicious circle there. I mean, because you never get off that treadmill. Um, there's also uh, the, the fear of relatives. Uh, there's the um, nuptophobia is the fear of singleness. There's the fear of left-handedness. There's the fear of chickens. Uh, there's all kinds of fears. As you can be overcome by fear. And it's, it's humorous, but we ought not make light of it. Many people are taken captive by all kinds of fears. And, and it's very, a very serious issue that really brings them into bondage. In fact, I would submit to you there is one kind of fear that we should all have up until we meet Christ. And that is phantophobia. It's the fear of death. Now, for good reason, we should be afraid of death if we don't have the promise of eternal life, ought we not? Because otherwise, what, what lies beyond our last heartbeat? If we don't have that guarantee, if we don't have that sure and certain promise, well, I think we ought to be afraid because life is awfully tenuous. Uh, what is the guarantee of the next morning? There is none. And so if tonight you've brought that fear into this room, we want to see it relieved because you can be certain that death has no hold upon you. Is that not the ultimate bondage? The fear of what happens after the grave? We don't think long and hard upon the, the process of death and dying in our culture. We treat it in a kind of a peculiar way. We, we get around a morgue or a, a funeral parlor or a, a funeral and we... Um, talk quietly. We, we whisper. I've never been certain of why that is. Uh, the person would be dead. I recognize there's a respect factor, but the hushed tones I, I'm, I'm, I've never really locked in on. But we need perhaps to consider the issue of death. It is, it is the, the final reality. We ought to educate our, ourselves and then our children about it and not just act like many people do, like, oh, it'll never happen to me. I'll be the one. Uh, no. We are going to face that, and we can overcome it. We can be not victims of death, but victors over death. I mean, that's the thing that should make our hearts leap as Christians. We have the promise of overcoming death. So ask yourself the question, what is the worst that can happen to me? Now, there are a lot of blanks you can fill in along the way, but ultimately you can go, you know what? Jesus said, don't fear the ones who can kill your body. That's going to happen, he basically inferred, anyway. Fear the one who has your soul in his hand. Fear the one who determines your eternal destiny. And to know your forwarding address, absolutely certainty. 
with that absolute positive control over where you're going to be for eternity is a wonderful thing. So we can have freedom from the fear of death to know where we're going and how we're going to get there. But a lot of people, Christians included, have a fear of change. A fear of change. Now, you're just going to have to get over that if you're going to experience the liberty and freedom that God has. You're going to have to experience some change of scenery because the Good Shepherd will move you from pasture to pasture periodically. And we don't always like that. See, we all have a certain frame of reference. And as you grow older, it becomes something like your musical language. Did you know you adopt at some point, usually between 12 and 21, a musical language? And that becomes as real to you as your vocal verbal language. That is the kind of music that you like. Now, you may dabble in other genres of music, in jazz and new age, but there's one kind of music, typically, that was impressed upon you in your adolescent years that to you is good music. And, you, and you'll find yourself saying, you know, they just don't make music like that anymore. But when Deep Purple, then they, that was just wonderful music, you know, and I realize I'm dating myself. But we all, many of us have that frame of reference. But it's not restricted to music. We have it about customs. We have it about food. We have it about events. We have it about movies. Uh, we have it about church. Ah, and that's when it gets sticky. Because when we think that the good old days include the kind of music we play, the way we approach the culture, the way we relate to our society, then we have the danger of becoming old wineskins and having that syndrome in our life where we think this is the only way God can move, because He moved that way when I was young. That is dangerous. At that point, I have observed, God will say, fine, I'm going on to a new wineskin that's pliable, flexible, and movable because I am eternally hip. That's kind of a paraphrase. Uh, but God is that way. God is not stuck in the past. God doesn't have this perception of the good old days. You know, he didn't go to Jeremiah and go, you know, Jerry, when I had Moses around here, those were the good old days in the Bible. It just isn't the same anymore. He doesn't have that person. He is always looking forward, always a God of newness, of freshness, of change. So if you're going to be stuck in the past, you're going to be left behind because God is a God of change. From glory we see here, look at verse 18. He wants to move us from glory to glory. Now, to experience that, you're going to have to sever some things with the past. He's going to move you on higher and fresher and newer in your walk with Him. And that's going to mean some change in your life. And to experience that, you're not going to be able to wear the veil. You're going to have to remove the veil from your heart and your eyes if you're going to see where God is leading you. It's a time of change. It's a new day. We have a new, a new way of, of, of relating and reaching God as opposed to the Old Testament of legal bondage. And just as the Jews had a veil covering their heart and spiritual eyes, we can cover our eyes and not really see the illumination of the glory of what God wants to do in our life. So you've got to get rid of the veil. And we are to look upon Him. Look at verse 18. But we all with unveiled face. So, 
Remove the legalism from your life. Get off the hamster-like treadmill of a performance-based relationship with God. Accept the great gift, the magnificent thing He has done to you in giving you the gracious and completely unrestricted gift of knowing Him and the privilege of serving Him. That will give you a platform, a place to begin of really seeing who you really are. Because, you know, a lot of us don't really know who we are. That may seem like a, a 60s or I'm going to find myself kind of a rhetoric, but n not so. Uh, many of us have been told by our parents what we should be. We've been shown by the educational system what we can be. We've been told by our friends to be like them. We've been beckoned by the world to be like this. And we've found out we can't meet that kind of bone structure or fat ratio or composition or whatever. And we find we really don't know who we are. And then it gets difficult because the church tells us, don't do that. So we wonder who we are. And there was that mantra back in the hippie era of go find yourself. Some people leave marriages, leave jobs, leave residences to go find themselves. It's a fool's hunt. Jesus said, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself. Because if you ever find yourself, you won't like what's there. You won't. It's a deceitful heart, wicked beyond all human belief and understanding. But the veil has some powerful spiritual imagery I want you to think about tonight. Uh, the veil that Moses had, the veil the Jews have today, the veil that you can have to restrict you and be a barrier from seeing the true you. That was powerful, a powerful term that Paul used here, that veil upon the heart, because it symbolized separation. It harkens back to the time of the tabernacle, the temple, that thick veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. And it meant, don't go here. Like, if you go here, you will die. One day, one man, one time could go in with the blood sacrifice and put it on the mercy seat and, and atone for the sins of the people, the kofar. But it, it meant separation from God. So it has some real strong language here. It illustrates the conditional nature of an Old Testament relationship. And I'll bet there are those here tonight who have fundamentally, functionally, an Old Testament relationship with God. You're still keeping score. And God stopped a long time ago because you lost. And He is the one who overcame. He was the victor over, over death. And so um, He has for us a very non-exclusive club. Now, most of the clubs in our society are, are somewhat exclusive to varying levels. Country clubs, athletic clubs, fraternities, sororities, and whatnot, based on all different kinds of characteristics. God's club, look at verse 18. But we all. Again, powerful language to the Jew. Because they had kind of an elitism mentality. The high priest, the prophet, the king, uh, the, the royal family, all the rest. Uh, and Paul says, no, destroy that architecture in your mind. But we all. I mean, not just Moses, not just the pope or the pastor or the priest or the king, no. We all. It is a completely level playing field. That's so important to recognize. That you're not some kind of a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. That you don't have to wait for something to happen or someone to tell you it's okay. Uh, it's okay. Come boldly before the throne of grace. But we all, 
with unveiled face. And the King James is a little bit awkward here. I recommend you look at some parallel translations and get the feel of this. But basically, the idea we have to look at, the key, the megathought, if you will, is that when you take the veil off and you reflect what you look at, what do you see? The issue here is not so much looking in a mirror and seeing the face of Jesus or being self-obsessed and seeing your own face. It's really reflecting whatever it is you look at in life and that you will be a natural reflection of what you're looking at. And if your face is unveiled and you're looking at the glory of God, you'll be fundamentally changed. Now, whether you know it or not, you need to change. We all do. When you have God working, it says here, in your life by His Spirit, you'll begin to change. Let me tell you a true glory story. I know it's true because I was there. And it goes back some years to the island of Maui when I was baptized. And I was baptized in a Pentecostal church. No, no, a flaming Pentecostal church. I mean, I was just a garden variety hippie, and these people talked more in tongues than they spoke in English. And I, that, that was a trip. And they had me get baptized. They took me to a public beach outside of Lahaina. And I, the pastor, I was the only one getting baptized that day. Uh, we both had to wear a white robe. And it, Sunday afternoon, lot, you know, a lot, a lot of tourists. Okay, great. I'll be a spectacle. And we get out in the, we, we, we get out in the water to spring this on me. He says, look, if you are sincere about this commitment, when you come up out of the water, you'll be speaking in tongues. I said, oh? I I didn't know tongues from anything. I thought, well, you know, if I wouldn't be out here in a white robe in front of all these tourists if I wasn't sincere. He says, no, if if you're you're, um, serious, you'll come out of the water speaking in tongues. Well, I didn't, and he was disappointed, and he sent me on down the road. But we drove back to the church. I was genuine in my commitment. But here's the deal. As we drove back to the church, I was in the backseat of his SUV, and I looked in the rearview mirror. Him and his wife were disappointed, and they weren't speaking to me. And I looked, I looked in that rearview mirror, and I saw my face, and it was glowing. Now, I didn't have a halo and fireworks were coming out of my ears, but my face was changed. And God was showing me, you know what, I know. It's genuine. Now, I've never had anything like that happen since. But I glowed that day. And in that way, as we look at Jesus, we begin to reflect His glory. We be- begin to... It's, it's, you can't avoid it, you see. Uh, it's nothing you have to work at. It's the Spirit that does the work. Um, there is no spiritual elitism. We all have this opportunity, all of us. Now, it's not natural for us to go through this process. It's an act of our will. And um, the problem is we all inherited broken mirrors, you see. Uh, The broken mirror problem. Uh, Before conversion, your view of God was all bits and pieces. And you didn't get a a complete image. Um, and that's why religion and the New Age and philosophy and all the rest, even Dr. Seuss has a little bit of God. Uh, but it's an incomplete truth, an inaccurate truth, because the glass was shattered at the fall of man. 
Now, biblical scholars debate long and hard about how depraved is the unconverted heart. Can the unconverted heart make a decision to be saved, or does God have to do it sovereignly, etc., etc.? You can read a lot of German theology, exhaustive and exhausting and all the rest. I prefer to look to a, a source of illumination more on my level. The story of Humpty Dumpty, who, as you might know, had a great fall. And all the king's horses and, well, you know, couldn't put him back together again. Now, that's a picture of the fall. You can look at it theologically and get all, all your Hebrew and Latin together, but we were fallen, we were broken, and we couldn't put ourselves back together again. But God did. God can. And he, he knows where all the pieces go. And He never gets it wrong. And so the fall of man is what broke the mirror. And we see here in verse 18 the process of having it put back together again. The, the restoration of the human soul. But the proof, if you need it, is everywhere that we are a broken people. And one of the things that distinguishes mankind from the animal kingdom, frankly, is our self-destructive behavior. Did you know that? I think there's, there is one animal, the lemming, that does commit suicide. Those are jumping off cliffs periodically, and no one really knows why. But it's a rarity in the animal kingdom. It's not in the human realm, is it? Now, what if you came home at night and your cat was on cocaine? Or you come home and you find out your collie is a mean drunk. It, it doesn't happen, does it? In the animal world, but it happens to people. People have self-destructive behavior. People are addicted to substances that are killing them, destroying their families, and they go on and on. Now, that is, that's a great mystery. But it points out the difference between man and animals. That there is, there is something going on here. And the addictions and the abuses and the idolatrous behavior uh, needs to be healed, needs to be solved. The image needs to be restored. We were all made in the image of God. Ponder that thought. Being made in His image. Now, whatever kind of imagery that evokes in, in your mind, know this. It, it doesn't mean you're little gods. It doesn't mean you're miniature gods. It means you were made to reflect His essence, His glory, His nature. You're like God. We'll never be God. We're not going to be promoted to Godhood in heaven. Uh, we are a little lower than the angels temporarily, and there will be a major upgrade coming, but the fact is, to be made in the image of God is what gives each and every individual their intrinsic human value. And to denigrate that, to devalue the very work of God's hands, is a very serious charge indeed. I would submit a, a spiritual felony. So how do we know what we should be? Well, when you look at the restored, the rebuilt mirror, what do you see? We see the face of Jesus, who is the express image of God. Hebrews 1, God, at various times, in various ways, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Now listen up. 
has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Further, get this, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his truth, Jesus. You want to know what God looks like? You want to know what God wants you to be like? Look to Jesus. You want to know the very, how God re responds to certain situations in life, challenges, temptations? Look to Jesus. The one who bypassed Rome, bypassed Jerusalem, chose to be born in the backwater stable in Bethlehem from a family in Nazareth, the offscoring of Israel. Look to Jesus. I love that phrase. Hmm. The express image of His person. Let that sink in. Well, again, who, uh, who are you, really? Somebody said that uh, we're like onions. Lots and lots of layers to get to the core. And if you cut us, we cry. And that's about how it is. Uh, there are lots of things that have been layered upon our life, upon the essential you, that burden you down, that keep you from the freedom God wants you to enjoy, the liberty God wants you to have. There are people who are putting stones in your backpack every day. You need to jettison those things. Um, what does God really want for your life if you get past those layers of parents and educations and do's and don'ts and can'ts and find out who you are in Christ. That is the penetrating, probing, personal question we must answer. Who are you in Jesus Christ? Not who the pastor thinks you are, not who your mate wants you to be. Who are you in Jesus Christ? What good works have you been created for? What poem have you been created to write in God's name? Um, living the unexamined life is a high crime in the spiritual realm. Not taking time to consider, to meditate, to contemplate, to absorb what God has been teaching you. It's called the, the dumbing down of the church. It's parallel with the dumbing down of America. You see, the powers that be, you saw the conglomerates that own all the huge media concerns in our country, they don't want you to think. They don't want you to ask questions. Fundamentally, they say, give us your money on one hand and your children on the other and shut up. Buy our fashions, buy into our styles, let our children float down the broad road and leave it alone. Don't think about it. Just, just get the latest fad, the newest fashion, invest your money, go deeply in debt, fund our next project, and don't ask questions. So the unexamined life will do just that. And you'll wake up and you'll realize you squandered the opportunities. You forfeited what was really valuable what was so, for what was socially trivial. That would be a frightening thing. Well, did you know the church? The church is the only true counterculture in the world today. Ever was, ever will be. Now, the hippies, we thought we were the counterculture. We thought we were doing things differently. No. See, a counterculture really is something going completely against the grain. 
flowing in the opposite direction. And so we adopt things to go against the mainstream. We drive, we drove vans or did this. Really, we still had the dominant characteristics of the culture. And that was deifying emotions and worshiping sensual perceptions. So whether you're drinking a six pack or doing up the latest designer drug, at the end of the day, you're at the same altar. You're worshiping the same thing. And so the hippies weren't the counterculture. Neither was Generation X or anything that's ever come along. Only the church is flowing against the flow of the world's stream and system. And it's possible to be a social Christian and not a biblical one. And just to adopt emotionally what's going on in the world and kind of marry it and merge it with the church and never really sacrifice, pay the price for true holiness. And if you take the easy way, the path, the lowest common denominator, you'll never know the freedom God has for you. You'll never know the reality of true worship because your mind will be so cluttered during times of music, you won't be able to get to penetrate past that veil. You'll have so much thought going on in your life and so much consideration and so much uh, weighing with the music and the lighting and the sound and everything else going on that you won't have the opportunity to ever really find out what it means to worship God, to have God speak to you, not to depend on anybody else, to really know what it means to get into the Word and the joy, the incredible freshness. I'll not forget the first time I really got in the Bible and God spoke to me. It was like, who's in the room here? It's like, because God will speak to you, show you things, and it's not audible. It it's, it's, it's doesn't happen where you can actually hear it, but it's undeniable. You know God's speaking to you. It's like it, That's why it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ we talk about. That's why it's something that we, we have to kind of quantify in terms that really don't match the spiritual. Well, we are. We are a counterculture. Ultimately, Caesar will not tolerate the church. Uh, that day may come sooner than we think. So how do we go about the process of self-examination? Well, by watching ER on television, we can find out some of the basic principles of, uh, of checking out the human body. First of all, we check the vital signs, right? Uh, the, the color of the skin, the breathing, the, the pulse, uh, the heartbeat, all, all the rest. Spiritually, same thing. You check for the fundamentals. Is the person born again? Has the person been converted, made that personal relationship to Jesus Christ? But that's not enough because there are people who come to church who are just barely alive. Converted, yes, but not functioning. Barely spectators. So just checking the vital signs of your life. Do you come to church? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Do you fellowship? Uh, good, but not good enough. We have to go further. We have to do some testing as they would in, in, in an emergency clinic. We take blood tests. We, we check different kind of samples. We see what's really going on. Is the body functioning in a healthy manner? Is it reproducing cells normally? Uh, are you a reproducer in the church? Now, Greg Laurie always quotes that statistic, and it's staggering that well over three-quarters, it's up in the high percentile of the church, has never led anyone to Christ. And if you have voluntarily denied yourself that privilege, i got to wonder why. 
And I can tell you how to rectify it tonight. Ask God. Ask God to help you lead someone to Christ tomorrow and find out what happens. Just say, God, just put me in the path of somebody. Make me open. Let me take that step of faith. Let me find out. Let me reach across the, um, the aisle at work. Let me speak a word in boldly at the 7-Eleven. Let me call somebody that I've been thinking about. That, and you'll find out that God's put that person on your heart. So that glorifies God. That fulfills your purpose. Listen, as long as we are self-obsessed, as long as your value structure depends upon how much fun you're having, how much pleasure you're getting, how much stuff you might have, uh, you're going to be an unfulfilled person. Unless and until uh, you are willing to give yourself away, you'll never find true freedom. You'll be in bondage to self. And that's one of the worst kinds. So further testing is required. You may have to call in a specialist, a counselor, a pastor, somebody to find out, here's what's going on in my life. Here are the trouble symptoms. Here's where it hurts spiritually. What should I do? Why am I not productive? Why am I not free in my worship? Why do I feel this oppressive temptation in my life? How do I overcome? So you call in a specialist. And then they treat the symptoms. And then you go into rehab and remission, and you're put back out in the field. That's the kind of self-test we ought to be regularly conducting in our spiritual life. To be certain that we are reflecting His very image. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is gone forever. The new has come. You've been given a new name, a new creation, a new heart, a new destiny, a new address in the future. And so, some here tonight need to sever some tentacles from the past. Let it go. Let it go. Forgiveness is the royal road to freedom. Let it go. Allow God to give you the freedom of being here now. Not stuck in the past, worrying about past hurts and being bitter. Not overly anxious, having phobia of the future, whatever that word would be. And allow yourself to be free, to be used, to allow God to move you from glory to glory. God's about that. God's about newness. He's about freedom. And he, he is in the process of bringing you out of bondage. Three questions, a quote, and then we'll close. First of all, where do you get your personal identity? You have to think about it. Examine that part of your life. Where have you gotten your values from? Um, if you got them in what you call a, the, the social house of mirrors, the house of horrors we have in, uh, in, in this culture, you're going to be in serious trouble. You've seen those at the state fair where you go in and the mirrors distort your image and make you... That's how the world is because they want you to continually trying to address the issues by spending money on their products and services to change that image in the mirror. Make sure the identity you are seeking comes from God. Because anything you're, do, you're doing to get purpose, to get direction, that isn't bringing you closer to your Creator, is putting you on a path of eventual misery. Misery! That's all that can be found outside of Jesus Christ. Listen to C.S. Lewis. It's a serious thing to live in a society of potential gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest 
the most uninteresting person you talk to every day may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you might be strongly tempted to worship it. Or else that person will become a horror and a corruption such as if you now met it, you'd think you were in a nightmare. All day long, to one degree or another, he says, we are helping each other to one of these destinations. So, who is your mirror? And what kind of mirror are you being to others? What message do you give about people's style, their looks? Are we caught up with the, the fashions that change almost on a weekly basis? Are you moving, secondly, towards liberty or towards bondage in your thought life, in your financial life, in your spiritual life? Have you been victimized by legalism? You need to cut those cords. You need to be free of what people think about you. And then flip the coin over and be careful that you aren't bringing others into bondage, that you aren't putting your tentacles, your hooks, your claws of legalism into the lives of those around you. You want to be free, right? Allow others to be free. Let God work through them in this individual, unique, unexpected way. Don't, don't put the barriers, the bondage, upon people. Well, how do we find out who we are in Jesus Christ? Now, the pat answer is in the Word, by the Spirit. True enough. But it's a process. You need to dispense with your past. Deal with it. Get over it. Get moving. You need to absorb these important scriptural principles into your system. Allow them to be just the fiber of your life. That when you're challenged in your thought life by unbiblical thinking, that you confront it violently and dispense with it. Don't allow it to take root in your life, to fester, to infect, to contaminate in a way that would pollute your purity. Be rough with yourself in that way. Paul said it. He said, I buffet myself. The term is to really... Box, to shadow box with himself. So be strong with those difficult areas and then allow time for growth. Do not forget the fundamentals. Do not drift and grow stale. Don't ever get the been there, done that idea about the church. Stay fresh. Stay stirred up. Stay challenged. If you don't consider your Christian walk to be an adventure, something's amiss. You need to get back to basics, ask God to stir you up, give you a fresh new vision, a piercing light into your life of where He wants to take you and those around you. Do not grow weary in well-doing, and do not ever think that your labor of love will go unrewarded. you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful tonight for your great grace. How undeserving each of us certainly are. To one extent or another, God, we are wretched sinners. Dear Lord, help us not to think 
we can do anything to add to your great act of salvation. How humbling. How totally humiliating to realize we can add nothing to what you did on the cross for us. There are those tonight, Lord, who need to make that step. Get over the fear of death by accepting the Prince of Life into their hearts. I pray that would happen right now. The, the spirit of liberty, the bondage of fear, would, would move amongst this body right now and, and do the work that only you can do.